Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. It's been a most amazing week again since our last podcast. Um, I was particularly struck yesterday by a few things. One was the horror of the bombing of the theatre in Maripol, where apparently a thousand people, a lot of women and children, um, sheltering, and um, the Russians have taken it out. Um, I was also struck by two very contrasting um, speeches that were given yesterday. One was by President Zelensky to the joint houses of Congress, uh, which was streamed live to the American people. And then we had the speech from Putin, uh, starting with Zelensky and the joint congressional speech. Um, you know, I thought he made a really, really compelling argument to the United States about what the Ukraine is at at the moment. It's fighting for freedom. It's fighting to preserve its democracy and it's fighting for the values of Europe and the world. And uh, I find it very, very difficult to disagree with any of that. Mind you, I was also struck by a tweet from our Irish MEP in Brussels, Mick Wallace, who said that Zelensky should have stuck to his former profession, which was as a comedian. Um, what I, I found an absolutely bizarre sort of comment. And um, looking... And we, I've, I've spoken about this certainly on a few podcasts, looking at the behavior of people like Mick Wallace and Claire Daly. I really think here in Ireland, we need to be very, very thoughtful about who we send out to Brussels to represent us. Um, they're certainly, in my view, doing the country no favors at the moment. If I might interrupt you there, Jim, um, I've got no 
insight into the thinking of, of these Irish MEPs that you refer to. But what I do know is that um, in the United States and indeed in the United Kingdom, we clearly have uh, apologists and fans for and of Vladimir Putin still in the present day, which if you think about all that's happened is absolutely remarkable. Um, there's a late night show on Fox News. There are various social media personalities, influencer types that have a very high profile in North America. We have the obvious politicians in um, and pundits in the United Kingdom that, uh, as I say, are apologists for Putin. And it's, it's remarkable that they exist at all. And they, I think they represent a threat to all of us, to be honest. Um, and uh, as you say, it's bizarre. But so it was, I think, during the 1930s. Um, yes, it, it, was, in, it, was, it was indeed, Chris, yeah. In Britain, you had Nazi sympathisers running all the way up to the royal f- members of the royal family, actually. But you had Mosley and other fascists and neo-fascists. And so maybe just things always stay the same. And um, we, we always get the full range of, 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 of people um, from, from the good to the very evil. So I, I think you're right that um, we do have to watch things very, very closely and call these people out when they do make their uh, fascist, neo-fascist, ludicrous remarks. Um, and, and, and you're right to do so. And I think the, the Irish Times has, has done a very good job over the last few days of calling out Sinn Féin, actually, the way in which Sinn Féin has cleansed its uh, record, online records of things that it said about Putin and things Russia have mysteriously disappeared. The Irish Times has recorded, um, or at least reminded us, that, of the record of various Sinn Féin MEPs, actually one in particular, who's made um, remarks in the past that verge on being pro-Putin. So I think I think it's good that this stuff is being recorded, is being noted. And I, I, I hope everybody does take notice of, of where people stand on this, because I think this is one of those situations where sitting on the fence is not an option. Um, I, and we, we will know our friends by, where, by which side of the fence um, they are on. And... Um, I do think that this is a good guys, bad guys situation. I think it's black and white. It's binary. They're very, there are no shades of grey in this one. I don't yeah, know I, 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 t- I totally agree, Chris. I was looking at the Trump loyalists in the United States. Um, I find the whole Trump thing extremely uh, worrying at this stage. But I saw two, a, co- a few of his loyalists in the last couple of days. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican from Georgia, uh, Fox News's Tucker Carlson, the white nationalist Nick Fuentes, who described what the Russian soldiers are doing at the moment as liberating Ukraine from the great Satan. Uh, it's it's absolutely bizarre stuff. Um, and from the perspective of the United States, uh, you know, the midterm elections in November, the distinct possibility that the current Republican Party will regain control of both houses, setting Trump up for a run in 2024. Uh, I really find that scary, to be perfectly honest. I said in the last podcast that, uh, you know, I really wonder what would be happening at this stage if Trump was still in the presidency uh, vis-a-vis the Ukraine situation. But um, be that as it may, I mean, these guys defending um, Putin, I I find absolutely extraordinary. 
Putin's speech yesterday, I think it was televised, um, what was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, he effectively launched a fascist dictatorship. He described what was happening at the moment as an existential war for his country's survival. And he said that Russians should distinguish patriots from scum and traitors, political opponents, dissidents, the fifth column. And he said that they should get rid of those people like bugs. Um, And Applebaum, who we've spoken about many times on this podcast, uh, she basically said that Putin's call for self-purification of Russian society can only have one intention, which is to remind Russians of Stalin and his purges. Um, And Putin has clearly and explicitly launched a crackdown against anyone showing even the remotest sympathy for Russian culture or for Western culture. Um, And for example, one of the first victims of that in the last day has been a popular lifestyle blogger. So it's 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 extraordinary that you can have people like Mick Wallace, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tucker Carlson, Nick Fuentes, all of these people um, defending and siding with Putin in this, because as you say, and I 100% agree with you, this situation to me is just totally binary. Um, I I also noticed that, um, you know, looking at what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, uh, the Russians have lost, apparently, according to the Pentagon, 7,000 soldiers in three weeks, which is more than the US has lost in 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. Um, And then it's estimated there's up to 21,000 Russian soldiers injured. And this is out of a fighting force of 150,000. So Zelensky and the Ukrainians are doing a fantastic job with not a lot of support from the rest of the world at the moment. Um, I saw a Russian uh, thought leader saying in in the last 12 hours that basically 30 years of economic development has been thrown in the bin over the last three weeks, and he's describing this extreme deglobalization of the Russian economy that's happening at the moment. Uh, 40 US companies have pulled out of Russia at this juncture. The sanctions are hurting, there's no doubt about that, and Putin has said as much over the last couple of days. But it's also interesting that the second largest privately owned business, uh, US business operating in Russia, Koch Industries, I probably got the pronunciation wrong. Um, Charles Koch, the CEO, says that he's going to continue to operate in Russia. He does not agree with the sanctions and believes that the United States should be neutral in this situation. Uh, so there you are. I mean, he's another apologist for Trump and for Putin. So this is, it's it's extraordinary stuff. But uh, go back to your point, Chris, that this is black and white you know, it's it's a binary situation. And um, I, I think a lot of us will judge people after this about what side they took in this particular dispute. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And um, as I say, it reminds me very much of, of previous episodes in history. Um, and um, it, it's it, in a way, it's very sad. Um, in a way, it, it, it reminds me that... Uh, of the old cliche that all great lies wrap, come wrapped around a kernel of truth. One of the things about all of this that bothers me is, is both Putin and Xi Jinping's diagnosis of the West, which is the kernel of truth around which all of their lies are wrapped. 
<clears throat> and that diagnosis is that we are decadent and that we are weak and that we are obsessed with uh, all the things that um, weak, decadent societies get obsessed with, which which is minutiae, it's the narcissism of small differences, it's all that wokeism stuff, it's, it's gender politics, it's all the the, the the tiny, tiny things that we end up being incandescently angry about um, reveals our weakness. Um, and it's time for that to stop, because if it doesn't stop, then those weaknesses will be continued to be exploited by people like Putin and Xi Jinping. Even if Putin doesn't survive this, somebody else equally nasty or worse is going to come along to exploit whatever weaknesses that we have. If we don't learn that lesson, then I think that we probably are in a lot of trouble um, from a from a civilization point of view, to be honest. I, I know that sounds quite apocalyptic, but um, I do think that unless we change, um, we, we are going to be in serious trouble, if not now, then um, with somebody like Putin's successor, with somebody like Xi Jinping, because um, I, th- I think that we are displaying a lot of weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses that they are clearly exploiting is that we have our fifth columnists, as they used to be called, um, the people who um, essentially side with the other side in all of this. And um, it's it's a form of paranoia, neuroticism. I think it's a psychological condition, actually. But, that, that, but for what it's worth, that's, that's what I think. Um, Chris, you wrote a couple of excellent pieces on our Substack account during the week. Um, go into pretty deep analysis on the Russia-Ukraine situation. Um, I was particularly interested in your take on China and Xi Jinping. Um, h- how do you see the Chinese situation playing out at the moment? In many ways, I think they hold all the cards when it comes to answering the question, what happens next in Ukraine? Because Russia, as we know, has asked them for economic help because of economic sanctions damaging Russia. And more in a more sinister way, I think, they've asked them for military help. The military help thing is really interesting because Russia is supposed to be this global military superpower. And it's been engaged in Ukraine now for just a short three weeks. And it's already running out of kit, such that it now has to ask China for some resupply, um, which I think speaks to the, the wider point we know is that they've got the logistics of this campaign completely wrong. I think it's important to stress that that's a, a so far story that you know that things could change. They could start getting it right, um, and the way in which they behaved in Syria, for example, suggests that, that the way they're going is that they'll just batter each and every city that they want to take control of in Ukraine into submission. The way that they battered Aleppo, in particular, for example, is is in in essence what they're doing to Mariupol. But the Chinese now, with their response to the question, can we have some guns from you, Mr. Xi Jinping? That's Vladimir Putin's question to Xi Jinping. The answer, I think, will determine a lot of what happens next. Um, The Chinese could say no. Uh, They could do the halfway house thing and give them some economic aid, but no military aid. Or they could go all in. If they go all in, then it's not just Russia deglobalizing, Jim. It'll be China and therefore the rest of us. The the parallels with 1914 are just too obvious to ignore. 1914 saw a lot of things, not least the start of the First World War. I'm not forecasting that happening again. But what 1914 also brought to an end was a long period of amazing globalization, actually, 
which we only relatively recently got back to in terms of the openness of the world economy. And um, arguably, we didn't even get back to where we were in 1914. Uh, but the, the 1914 to 1989 period, arguably, maybe we can argue about the dates, was a period of deglobalization. And it was only with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of China in 1978 that the current era of globalization really got underway. If China goes all in with Russia, economically, that period is over. And God alone knows what that means for the global security situation, because that obviously raises the prospect of outright conflict with NATO. Um, It raises questions over the future of Taiwan. My own guess for what it's worth, and it probably isn't worth very much, is that they'll choose the halfway house. They'll give some economic assistance to Russia, but they won't give, at least in any obvious way, military assistance. And the reason why I say that is the effect on the Chinese economy. We've already seen earlier this week just what had been happening to Chinese stock markets, Chinese bonds, Chinese financial markets were in absolute meltdown. Um, it doesn't get an awful lot of reporting, particularly outside the business pages, but it really was the beginnings of what looked like a financial crisis full on for China. And the authorities had to intervene in the way that Chinese authorities do. And they look in the short term, at least to have stabilized it. But I think it was a warning from financial markets to the Chinese government that if you go down the route of deglobalization, full in, all in support of Russia, your economy and your financial markets are going to suffer enormously. And all the gains that you've um, achieved since 1978 are threatened in the way that you just said that Russia's 30 years of economic progress have been thrown away in 30 minutes. uh, A lot of China's gains would be thrown away. And I think that that represents an existential threat potentially to the Chinese Communist Party that they won't be prepared to put up with. But we'll see. I mean, those are my guesses and only my guesses. But I do think China's reaction is going to be key to what happens next. Obviously, what's in the mind of Vladimir Putin is also critical. And um, I, again, I've no idea. I'm not a military type. But it seems to me that he's negotiating in very bad faith with uh, the Ukrainians. And uh, he intends to do in Ukraine what he did in Syria, which is, is... Uh, prepare for a very long campaign where he reduces the key cities to rubble in order to regain control. Um, It's a very simple model and um, it's one that he's deployed before, not just in Syria, but also in Chechnya. So I think it's very important always to look at what people have done before as a guide to what they'll do next. It's no guarantee, but um, that's what I think he's up to. Um, And I don't have a lot of faith in in the negotiations. I have a lot of hope, obviously. Um, and I hope I'm wrong with my scepticism about Putin's good faith in the negotiations. But but there it is, Jim. I'm I'm afraid I'm quite pessimistic about what happens next. Well, yeah, that's that's certainly sobering stuff. Um, on a brighter note, Chris, <clears throat> I had two wins in Cheltenham today. Which Very brings, good. Which brings my total to four so far this week. So uh, congratulations. At, at least there's some good news out there. Um, in the last 24 hours, we've had uh, two significant developments on the economics front. And um, I know this is primarily an economics podcast that has become very dominated with politics and war in recent weeks. But br- bringing it back to economics again, uh, yesterday we saw the US Federal Reserve increase interest rates for the first time to 25 basis points. 
and the Federal Open Market Committee, that's the FOMC, that sets interest rates on behalf of the Federal Reserve, um, basically said that U.S. economic activity and employment continue to strengthen um, and that the inflation problem is a combination of supply and demand pressures. And as a consequence, they are using interest rates to address the demand side of that equation. And... um, suggesting that ongoing increases will be appropriate and uh, the market view at this juncture is that we'll have another six increases this year so that's the federal reserve you know having acted um i noticed that one member of the fomc actually voted for an increase of 50 basis points and um he was obviously outvoted but it just shows uh, the thought process there at at the moment Um, Then in the UK, we had the Bank of England increase interest rates for the third time, another quarter of 1% or 25 basis points, which takes rates back to pre-COVID levels, which were the highest levels of base rates since the great financial crash. And um, okay, the the, the statement accompanying that Bank Bank of England increase was somewhat less hawkish than we've seen over recent weeks because they're recognizing uh, the impact of inflation, the rising cost of living, the Ukraine war, um, the potential for that to damage economic activity. But still, there is an expectation that UK rates will rise further. So there we have two of the significant central banks um, increasing interest rates in the last 24 hours. Uh, The European Central Bank uh, continues to keep rates on hold um they continue to um you know suggest that they are going to withdraw a lot of monetary stimulus through quantitative tightening over the next few months but this morning the february inflation number for the euro area was revised up from 5.8 to 5.9 percent and if you look at the the range of inflation across the eurozone countries it's running at 14% in Lithuania um, and at the upper end and at the lower end, France at 4.2%. Um, energy prices for the euro area as a whole up by 32%. Um, core inflation, which is um, a record high, core inflation, which excludes food and energy, up by 2.7%, which I think is a record high also. And within that, food prices up by 6.2%. So brings us back to the old question, um, given what the Bank of England and the US Federal Reserve are doing on the interest rate front at the moment in the face of strong enough growth, inflation, increasing interest rates. Uh, how do you view the European Central Bank's perspective at this stage? I think we- they've got the same dilemma that the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve have, which is that they are all over the place with respect to the various push and pull factors um, in terms of which direction they go in terms of policy. Um, we've had, I think you've noticed on the website this morning, our Substack site, we've got at least one question from somebody saying, what on earth's going on? Why would you raise interest rates given all of the uncertainty at the moment? That sort of question I think is quite common. And I think it's being asked inside central banks as well. The reason why you raise interest rates is because on the face of it, almost superficially, your mandate for all three central banks with some nuance is to target inflation at or around two percent and inflation is well above that in all three regions particularly the united states Um, and if you follow your mandate you've got to lower inflation 
and to do that you raise interest rates. So we know that's why they're doing it. But we also know that things like energy price shocks and wars often lead to recessions. They are disinflationary, if you like, um, and certainly bad for economic growth. And central banks are also there to anticipate the future and offset that. So that really tells them to go in the opposite direction. I think they're trying to strike a balance. The way in which this is all over the place in terms of people's views, in terms of the way people's views are changing, is that if you look at the actual something called the dot plot of the Federal Reserve. Now, this sounds a bit jargony. It is. And essentially, it's it's a graph of the expectations of each member of the Federal Reserve Interest Rate Setting Committee, where they think interest rates are going. It's mildly interesting in and of itself, but the most interesting aspect of this particular um, thing is the way in which it changes. It generally evolves slowly through time. Some members of the Federal Reserve put their expectations up, some put them down, and you see it gently changing through time. Compared to the last time they met, the dot plot is all over the place. They, um, the range, the number of people who've changed their minds, the, the range over which interest rate forecasts are expected to go now. And these are the people who are setting interest rates, remember. Um, it It is consistent either with people taking on board lots of new information and coming to different conclusions and or a bunch of people who really don't know what's going on. And um, either explanation is equally plausible. Um, and I have my sympathy. I'm not mocking them. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not sure anybody knows how this is going to go. Um, Because in order to gauge where economic growth and inflation will be this time next year and and in the future, which is what the central bank's job is, you've got to start talking about which way the Ukraine war is going to go, both militarily and therefore economically. And I think that's pretty much impossible at the moment. We can have interminably long discussions between ourselves. We can read all the stuff that the military types are putting out. And you have to answer some pretty fundamental questions. Not least, for example, where will the debate over cutting imports of Russian oil and gas go? This is one of the questions that I addressed in the written pieces this week. And I gave my own personal view, which is that America is right to ban all imports of oil and gas from Russia. And Europe is wrong. I think that there are um, ethical and sanctions reasons why banning Russian oil and gas is a a very, very good idea. And I go through that in in the piece that I wrote and essentially channeling um, a writer who we've quoted many times on this podcast, Martin Sandbu of the FT, um, who really has eloquently articulated the case for everybody to ban Russian oil and gas. But that will have massive economic consequences, whichever way that decision goes. If, If Germany in particular and Europe in general keep importing that stuff, that will have military consequences. It will have economic consequences for Russia in that that will give them over a billion dollars a day in revenues to continue fighting the war. And it will have economic consequences for Europe, uh, both directly and indirectly. Should Europe go the way of America and ban all imports of oil and gas, that will have a completely different set of economic consequences. And, um, you know, that's something the central banks, excuse me, are having to wrestle with. Another thing the central banks are having to wrestle with are the consequences of the pandemic. I don't know whether you remember that, Jim, the pandemic. Remember that? Yes, I I do indeed, Chris. And uh, incidentally, infection rates are going up dramatically here in Ireland in recent weeks. And in the the UK and elsewhere. Nearly everybody I know at this stage has COVID. In particular, they're going up in China, Jim. 
And one of the reasons why we were talking through the course of last year about supply chain induced inflation was uh, had an awful lot to do with lockdowns and shutdowns and the pandemic in China, where China is responsible for a big link in the global supply chain. And it's just been a large chunk of China has just been shut down again. So again, going back to what central banks have to wrestle with is that that, that too, just as it did last year, will cause shortages and inflation. And you know that there, there, there is talk of um, not just inflation now, but of outright shortages of things like wheat from Ukraine and Russia. Uh, diesel is in global um, is, is very the supply chain for diesel is very tight, and people are speculating about whether or not diesel is going to be rationed going forward. I don't want to be a scaremonger, but um, as, a, as somebody that has a diesel car, that alarms me. Um, so. If you ask, going back to the original question, if you're a central banker trying to set interest rates, where normally you sit around a table and discuss mostly what's happening in the labour market, which is where most of the action for inflation or otherwise it takes place. Notice we haven't talked about the labour market at all. We're talking about other factors. It's a new world for central bankers and an incredibly difficult one. Um, I think that you're, as an economist, Jim, you remember the the, the, the uh the old Keynesian thing about the difference between risk and uncertainty. And Keynes pointed us to somebody called Frank Knight, to, to something called Knightian uncertainty. Um, risk is something that we know how to deal with because it's something that we can assign probabilities to. There are various outcomes. We can put probability distributions. We can put error bands around things. We can say things like we have 95% confidence or whatever, all of that statistical stuff that enables us to approach things in a risk-managed way. Or there's uncertainty. Now, uncertainty in the Frank Knight Keynes sense is something about you can't put a probability on it. There, you just have no way of knowing. And I think that we are in an uncertain rather than risky world. Um, there are uh, clearly risks of things going wrong, but we have absolutely no way of putting probabilities on them in the way that we normally can risk. So I, I, that's a long-winded answer to your question, Jim. I have a lot of sympathy for central bankers. I think they are all over the place, but with very good reason. Yeah, the, the, the way people and businesses and indeed countries try and manage risk is to look at the probability and multiply it by the impact and you you act accordingly. But in this situation, there is just so much uncertainty in there that we, we have no idea. Uh, the supply chain stuff out of China is interesting because uh, you're correct. I mean, the debate we've been having about supply chain difficulties over the last couple of years have largely emanated from... Uh, China, what's happening in China now with large swathes of China being shut down again, obviously there's going to be serious issues. Uh, you mentioned the wheat that comes out of uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, you think about the fact that Ukrainian farmers at the moment um, are not in a position to sow the harvest for next year or later this year because um, for many reasons, one is that a lot of the fields and the lanes into the fields are actually mined by the Russians at this stage. And I heard a farmer being um, interviewed who was saying that um, many of his fields have hundreds of dead Russian soldiers littered around them. So it's it's, it's quite extraordinary stuff. Um, I does this, you, you mentioned the diesel piece, but apparently also there are serious issues now around the future supply and price of AdBlue which is something I add to my car to uh, reduce the emissions from it. Um, 
I, I also actually didn't realize until this morning that Ukraine supplies 50% of the world's neon gas and neon gas is a major input into the manufacture of semiconductor chips. So you can see there uh, the problems. You can look at the amount of industrial metals like nickel, aluminium, palladium, uh, some of which are key inputs into electric vehicle batteries. Uh, a lot of those metals come out of that part of the world. Um, there's a huge question mark over the future supply, but prices have absolutely soared. So this casts another huge doubt over the whole EV climate agenda um, issue that many countries are embarking on at, at the moment. And uh, I noticed that Volkswagen, for example, has a plant um, in Ukraine um, that manufactures a lot of the inputs for particularly EVs, I believe, but also a lot of the wiring and stuff for all of their manufacturing. Um, they're not aware if that plant is still standing or not. You know, it's shut down, obviously, but they don't know if, if it exists at this stage or not. So that has huge implications for future car supply. You could go on and on, but you can see uh, the huge, huge difficulties that are arising here. And you can see from a central bank perspective, how do you deal with all of this stuff? And um, I, somebody responded to something um, I did on the stand with Eamon Dunphy's podcast during the week where I was talking about the European Central Bank and inflation. And I was making the argument that the European Central Bank would be mad to be contemplating increasing interest rates in this environment because Europe is very different than the United States, particularly from a fiscal stimulus perspective. Uh, but I got one response from a guy saying, there's no question here the European Central Bank needs to increase interest rates. The Federal Reserve, the Bank of England are doing it, so the ECB now needs to do it. Um, I, I think that analysis is extremely simplistic. And, uh, you know, I, I, I go back to the point, I don't believe the ECB should be even contemplating tightening interest rates at this juncture. Here in Ireland, um, one of the interesting things I am watching closely at the moment is what's happening, okay, on the overall inflation front um we, we have obviously the highest rate of inflation in 21 years but a, a lot of that is energy induced but i'm watching what's happening on the food inflation side um in the year to february annual food prices were up by 2.9 percent uh you might say that's relative to other inflation rates in the system at the moment that is very tame and modest but it is the highest annual rate since december 2008 and it's also worth pointing out that in the 10 years to February, average food prices have actually declined by 8.5%. So Irish consumers, largely because of the market share growth of Aldi and Little, the discounters, um, we, we've Irish consumers have faced food price compression, which has been good for the consumer, but has been absolutely disastrous for the primary producer. And you know, Chris, I'm very close to the primary producers of food, um, given my farming background, also given uh, the work I do with Love Irish Food. Um, but so, so, so I, fi I find this stuff really interesting. Earlier this week, the Central Statistics Office here published agricultural output and input price data. And in the year to January, agricultural output prices increased by 16.9%. Okay, this is the price 
of the product as it leaves the farm gate, okay? But input costs have increased by 26.4%. And within that, fertilizer prices are up by over 127%. Motor fuel is up by 36.8%. So what I'm really saying is that um, I would expect over the coming months to see a significant bout of food price inflation feeding into the system here. Um, I overheard a, or at least I was party to um, a discussion from some UK farmers during the week who were expressing their fears that the UK faces an existential threat as it is not as it's not capable of feeding its own people. And roughly 50% of um, the food 50% of food production in the United Kingdom is actually produced domestically. So uh, given these global issues on the food supply, given what's happening with wheat, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, th- there's a huge issue here. And this brings us back to Brexit as well and the stupidity of the whole Brexit situation. And uh, Bob Boris should really, really stand up in shame at what he's done um, in relation to Brexit over the last few years. And uh, finally, Irish consumers will be treated in April to uh, Borgosh announced during the week that from April onwards that the average electricity bill will go up by 27%, the average gas bill by 39%. So a lot of pressures there coming through on the Irish consumer as well. On that note, Jim, that cheerful note, I think it's probably we've run over time, so we'll call it, and I look forward to speaking to you next time. Excellent, Chris. Good to talk, as always. Thank you very much. And Cheers, well, well done on the stuff you've written on our Substack account over the last week. Great Thanks, stuff. Thanks, mate. Cheers. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did... Please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.